Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Swisspreneur. I'm here at Lake Geneva waiting for Andre Boschberg. Andre flew his solar plane around the world with any drop of fuel. I'm very happy to meet with him today. Hi Andre. Pleasure to see you. Yeah, thank you for doing this interview with us. It's a great honor to be here. It's a pleasure to share. Great. Um, we are here at your home in Nyon. Um, your son told us that uh, one day his dad told him about the idea of flying around the world in a solar plane. Could you uh, fill us in in the moment you were informing your family about this crazy idea? Yeah, that's already some time ago because it's 14 years uh, then this, uh, that this happened. And in fact, uh, 17 years ago, I was fascinating, fascinated by the flight of Bertrand around the world when he uh, flew with Brian Jones uh, with, the, uh, with the balloon. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I thought at the time, geez, that's a guy I could work with. And, you know, put it on the side of my brain. And a few years later, thanks to uh, EPFL, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, um, they brought us together uh, at the time when he had the idea uh, not only to fly without the dependence on fossil energy, but to try to fly with something which could have an unlimited endurance. So drawing its energy from a renewable source. And I thought this was an absolutely fantastic idea. And uh, I was always fascinated by pioneers when I was a young boy. And in some ways I felt this was the, uh, uh, like opening the door into the world I've been dreaming about since a long time. So that's why I was thrilled with this idea. And I came back home and we had, I mean, I was sitting over there and uh, we had, you know, family dinner. My kids were, of course, much, uh, much younger. Uh, and I said, um, I mean, can you guess what I will talk about? And of course, nobody could, could have guessed that, but it was a tremendous, I mean, a tremendous moment. And how did they react? Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, of course, they were uh, extremely happy to see that this made me a little bit crazy. Uh, on the other side, I think uh, they, they must have thought that, you know, from the idea to the re realization, there was a huge way. So they must have thought, that's great, he has his project, but, you know, let's wait until he can really realize it. Mm. And that's true, it took some time. So. Yes, true. Yeah. We will come back to that and talk about Solar Impulse a lot more. Uh, maybe uh, for entrepreneurs, I would like to go to the beginning of your life. So maybe you can tell us a little bit how you grew up, like about your family and maybe by the people, parents or grandparents or uncles or whoever inspired you to become a pioneer. Yeah, I was born in Zurich. Unfortunately, I mean, I didn't have enough time to pick up real Swiss German. So my German is not too bad, but not as it should be. Huh? And my family moved to, uh, to Lausanne when I was about four. So I spent my uh, young age uh, in this part of the, uh, of the world. My father was uh, 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 somebody pretty secret. Uh, but he had an interesting personality and I think he was very curious and I, he, he wanted to discover uh, new, new things 
all the time. I mean, new type of activity, new regions of the world. Uh, and I think I got from him my interest of, uh, of trying to do always something, uh, something different. My mother had, uh, had a, great, uh, a great temper and she, was, uh, uh, she had a fantastic energy and I, got, uh, and I think that's what I got from, uh, from her. I mean, to have a very positive, uh, uh, positive mindset. Uh, but my father was a professor at university, so he was not so much an entrepreneur, you know, as, as, we, as we know, know it. Uh, but he went to study uh, again when he was 50, so, you know, he, he was ready to put himself into, uh, into a new situation. And, and, and I think that's what made him, maybe with his scale, uh, some kind of a, of a pioneer as well. So that was the kind of environments I, I, uh, I worked with, and I think I developed a character of, um, uh, of being a little bit rebellious. Uh, so sometimes it made my life difficult, but very often I think it helped me uh, to, uh, to try things that people did not believe in. So I was never disturbed when people said no chance. In contrary, I said, I'm going to prove you that it works there. Uh, so, uh, so this part of the character was, uh, was I think, uh, a little bit the field conductor of my, uh, of my professional life. Mm -hmm. Was that also already that early age when you uh, dreamed of becoming a pilot, or when did it start, and how did it, how do you came about of the dream becoming a pilot? You know, at the time there was no, I mean, no television. I think I got, the, we got the television when uh, uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. That was 1968. Mm -hmm. and I was 16. Huh? Yeah. Until then, no television, so mostly books. Yeah. And I read many books about uh, pilots, about pioneers. And yes, this made me uh, develop, I think, uh, uh, the dreams of a, of, of a child. Uh, the dream of becoming a pilot, but the dream of pioneers as well. Uh, the pioneers in terms of flying, I mean, the one, for example, who opened the, uh, the, uh, the different lines from the Aeropostale, I mean, the French up to South America, uh, the one who invented the aviation we, we know today, and uh, I was fascinated by the way that they try, in fact, to go into this, uh, this unknown. And at the time, I, I really thought about how exciting, I mean, the life this would uh, uh, be. And when I met Bertrand uh, 14 years ago, uh, after having done so many different things, I had the impression that I was going back to this dream of my childhood and that I was just opening this secret box which was hidden somewhere in my, my, in my brain or in my, uh, in my mind. So it started early uh, and uh, of course it helped me to become, uh, uh, and I had the chance to become a fighter pilot in the, in the Swiss Army. Mm -hmm. I could uh, stay as a, as a pilot for 25 years uh, doing my military service. Uh, in some ways the, the most interesting way to, uh, to fly uh, maybe the most challenging, but also learning a lot of different things which were going to be extremely helpful also for my, uh, my professional life. Because you, you fly at the limits. So uh, one thing I learned was to, to be able to develop um, uh, the ability to criticize myself in an objective way. Because if you do not you may risk to go over the limit and kill yourself. 
and to know, I mean, what you did well and what you don't do well, what you have to improve, what you have to learn is extremely important. I think was also important afterwards to my professional life. Right. Yes, definitely. Um, you then went on to study at great universities. APFL, you already mentioned, that was uh, right in front of your doorstep, but also uh, MIT. I'm studying at these great universities. Is there anything you believe that helped you in your, in your professional life? And if yes, what was it? Or would you recommend to a young entrepreneur rather just skip school and start their business? What's your take on that? Different ways to look at it. Huh? Uh, engineering was, I think, extremely uh, helpful, of course, to help me to understand how the physical world functions. Um, in some ways, I was maybe too much taken at the time by the physics itself and not maybe enough by the, the mental part of, of, uh, of, uh, of human beings, which I learned maybe uh, uh, later on. Uh, but it helped also to satisfy my curiosity. So uh, uh, extremely helpful. I went then to MIT and I did the, the business part of MIT, the Sloan School. Uh, some kind of an MBA, I mean, it's, it's uh, maybe a little bit different there, but it's, it's very, uh, very comparable. Uh, and there, um, uh, I guess I got tools, but uh, it put me also into a frame. And for me, the risk and the problem, problem uh, with MBAs uh, is that uh, it tends to structure the mind, but maybe limits the possibility to think a little bit differently. And in some ways, if the automobile industry was not able to produce a good electric cars, it's because they had too many Harvard MBAs who wanted to <laughs> optimize the business, think about cost, think about market share. Uh, and of course, if you ask someone, you know, would you like to have an electric car which uh, drives only 300 kilometers? Uh, as an endurance, everybody will say, uh, um, no, of course, you know, I, I need 800. And therefore, in fact, you know, the manufacturer decides not to do the car. But right. Elon Musk understood the question completely differently and said, I will do something, I mean, uh, much more sexy. That's what you can find in the automobile world. And this part will interest my, uh, my, uh, first, uh, my first customers. And I think that's what worked. But an MBA has difficulty maybe to see what a pioneer, what an entrepreneur could, uh, could spark, could, uh, could do. So, of course, it helped me to get a structured mind. On the other side, I think it limited my way to think really in a larger, in a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And looking at your kids who went to school recently and maybe um, giving advice to all the young ones still at university or in school, um, now is a world where we probably are losing a lot of, uh, a lot of jobs because of digitalization and, and the world is moving so fast. And what's your recommendation to young people? How should they prepare themselves for uh, entrepreneurial career? What should they do? Depends on the character. I mean, some people have such a character when they are maybe 16, 17, 18. They don't need much from outside to know that's what I want to do, that's where I want to go, and that's what I will, and that's the way I will, uh, I will choose. Other people, they may have to learn a certain number of things, but also in terms of behavior, they are maybe a little bit too young. 
So of course, if you, if you, if you study, if you learn how to be perseverance, go deep into something, it will be, it will be helpful in the future. So I think it depends on your, on your character. And not everybody can be an entrepreneur, I guess. And, and you know, we need also a world made of different people. Uh, and, and that's what makes the value of, of, of humanity. It's the differences. If we are all similar and do all the same, I mean, we'll do all the same mistakes and we will not be able to move forward. Uh, so let's build on diversity. But of course, you know, looking at, at uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the young generation, uh, not everybody needs to go for too long time at school. I mean, some people, I mean, are, are, are so strong that they will find their way by themselves and they prefer to have this freedom of thinking instead of having a framework uh, which will block their, their thoughts. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, moving on to Solar Impulse, um, a fascinating idea. I uh, almost cried when I was watching the videos on your website. It's uh, incredible what you have achieved. And um, I think it was also for you guys, it was every day, it was an adventure. So uh, maybe could you explain the audience a little bit like um, Solar Impulse, it's more than a solar plane. Maybe also give us a little bit insight on your thoughts on climate change. And I saw Bertrand on one of his flights, he was uh, directly connected to Ban Ki-moon, to uh, the UN, United Nations. So maybe tell us a little bit the bigger picture. Why are you doing this and what's the, the vision and the inspiring character of it? So the first idea was uh, uh, to think away from fossil energy uh, and to develop an example uh, which is uh, not easy to uh, successfully achieve uh, of uh, an example of using on one side renewable energy and on the other side what we call clean technologies. So a very efficient way to use the resources we have available. And there is nothing better than an airplane to do this because in airplanes you can't cheat. There is no way to cheat. I mean the airplane is too heavy, it will not fly. If the airplane is not perfect, it will never fly day and night using only solar energy as the source of energy. So that was the starting point. Huh? So we wanted to have an airplane which can fly forever. And the only way to have an airplane which can fly forever to show the potential of these technologies is to get your, the energy from an outside source because you have to embark the energy from the ground. It's going to take space. It's going to be heavy and it's impossible mm -hmm. to have it fly forever. Yeah. Uh, so the sun was the only way that explains why it's solar. But if it, if it flies solar, to be able to fly day and night, you need something which is extremely energy efficient, uh, the highest level of efficiency. And if you think about our world, we have one great source of energy which is above us, which is sufficient. Of course, you have to find a way to I mean, get this energy and to collect it, to uh, keep it, to store it. And on the other side, uh, uh, today, in fact, we are um, uh, spending and using the energy in, in, a, in an uncontrolled way, which means we have losses uh, everywhere in the production chain of energy, in, in the way we use this energy until uh, it's used by the, uh, by, the, uh, by, by the customer, I mean, by the, uh, the, right. uh, the end, end producer. Yeah. Uh, and if we would reduce all these losses and if we can save this energy, 
we can reduce energy consumption by 50%. That's exactly what we did in this airplane. That's what we are advocating to do on the ground. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the goal of the project. That's the, uh, that's the message we have, uh, we have behind, and that's what we have been aiming for. That's reasons why we have worked with uh, uh, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Ban Ki-moon, because that was one of his pillar and one of the actions he wanted to implement in the world, and that's the reasons why you know, he was so uh, active at COP21, COP22, uh, COP where all the countries signed this famous uh, agreement about climate last year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you were flying together with Bertrand, as you said, and you were switching, like I think, like uh, you said, one started, you were starting, you did the first flight, and then he did the last one, and why were there two pilots? Because uh, it was impossible to have, uh, uh, I mean, it was impossible to have two pilots at the same time in the airplane. Right, there was just one, right? Uh, so the there airplane? was one, just one, but there was two pilots of the project, uh, and uh, that's um, what happened. In fact, when we when we met, Bertrand had this uh, this idea, and uh, I was the one, in fact, who had to transform this vision into reality into an airplane. So he was out, you know, doing a lot of conferences to try to bring, successfully to try to bring uh, partners on board of the project. It was a big budget. Huh? Mm -hmm. We raised 170 million yep. for 13 years. See, looks big, but it's, uh, it's about 4% of what one Formula One team <laughs> spends every year. <laughs> Uh, so in comparison, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty modest. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and on my side, I mean, uh, I had to think about how, uh, I mean, which kind of airplane to build, how to build it, how to make it fly, and how to fly, uh, how to fly around the world. That's the way we splitted our, uh, our respective missions. But what was interesting was that um, for the key decisions, of course, we always uh, discussed them together and uh, we had an extremely active partnership and high added value partnership because on one side we share the same vision and I think we share the same values on the other side we have completely different approach he's a psychiatrist he's an explorer I'm an, uh, an, an entrepreneur I was a I mean a semi-professional pilot it was not my profession but I mean I was trained like uh, in the uh, in the army, and the combination of all our personal resources made almost the perfect individual. Uh, but not when we were alone. Uh, so, uh, you know, managing in fact this uh, this relationship was uh, was extremely important, and I think that's what we understood well. Uh, when we were faced with a decision, I think we never came with the same solution. But we never fighted, in fact, to impose our respective solutions. And we, we understood that it was interesting to, to ask to the other one, I mean, why do you think this way? Because, you know, I just thought the opposite, but why do you think this way? And by sharing, we were always, uh, in, uh, we were always able to find a solutions which was better than the solution of one and the, or the other ones there. So that's how we created value. Mm -hmm. That's also your definition of a great team, I guess. That's my definition of a great, uh, of a great partnership. Yeah. Uh, and I guess of a great team, because you can apply the same reasoning uh, between, uh, between team members. Uh, if you bring people who are similar, they will have a great time because they all agree. Uh, 
but having great time doesn't provide uh, value. Uh, so what you try to do, of course, is to bring people who are very different and create uh, added value through these synergies. But when you bring different people together, normally everyone wants to demonstrate to the other one that his vision of the world is the right one. And they don't listen. You don't want to argue. I mean, I think about my way. I mean, why don't you, uh, you know, understand that that's the best uh, way to, uh, to move forward? until you make them understand that maybe they can improve their own ideas by bringing in what other people have as an experience. So if you can start to get these bridges built, that's really where you create value. That's what I try to do. That's the way we operated between Bertrand and myself. And that's what I try to do and what I did, in fact, now with, the, with, the, uh, with the team I built in, uh, in Dubinov. And um, building this team in Dubendorf, were there any learnings you had on recruitment? Is there looking back, like the ones you hired and, uh, and the ones who actually were the ones who worked out great? Is there anything you can share? Any advice for younger people who have to do recruitment? What are you looking for if you recruit talent? Well, I think it all depends what you're looking, uh, what you're looking for. What I needed was people who would come with new ideas because everything that happened was new. That was a new structure, new materials, new propulsion, new source of energy, uh, maybe a different way to fly. Uh, so I wanted to have people who were able, uh, who had a strong experience, but were able to put this experience a little bit on the side. So some kind of free minds. Uh, so I was not interested to have good team players, uh, nice people, you know, who can be in teams and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested to have people who were fighting for their thoughts, but of course, you know, I made them try afterwards to listen to the other one. But at the beginning, we had, had the will, in fact, to go behind, I mean, some, some, some boundaries. So I ended up by having a lot of tough people there. Uh, and my role became uh, the role of a coach to try to manage this very diversified uh, group of uh, group of people. And uh, today, I mean, if I that's what I always say. I mean, if I would develop another activities, I think I could become a couple therapist because that's <laughs> what I learned of you know of doing of trying to make people listening and and, and building bridges between uh, between each other. Uh, so the lesson for me was, at the beginning, uh, you don't look for people because they are, I mean, good team players. You look uh, uh, for people who really have the talents and the skills you need to fulfill the task that you, uh, that you hire them for. Right, right. And, and then you have to solve the issues on the human side. And that's the role of the, uh, of the, of the boss, of the coach, of the group leader. And, uh, of course, the role changes over time, depending on the situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I remember like one story when the plane blew up in Dubendorf, um, and that probably not happens in that dramatic uh, scenery in normal startup, but sometimes something blows up, blows up in startups too. Um, how do you keep uh, a team engaged? How do you keep them from not giving in and, and, and not believing in your vision anymore? Like maybe you could fill in uh, us a little bit with the story in Dubendorf, what happened there and how you actually turned something bad for the project in something in an opportunity. Yeah, this was a very interesting case. Uh, we already had the first airplane flying, uh, so we did uh, uh, an important step forward, uh, Surin Plus One, 
uh, who was a, a, a demonstrator, was already flying within Europe. So we had some experience. We were building the second airplane to fly around the world. Uh, we were pushing the limits further. Uh, we were trying to make it lighter. We were trying to have it a higher performance to be able to fly over the oceans. And uh, at the time we were testing the main part of the airplane. That's a little bit the backbone. That's the main spar of the wing. That's like our our backbone huh? here in the uh, in the uh, in the back. So you design, you calculate, uh, you push the limits, but at the end you have to physically test it in all conditions. It's a long test, four weeks, different sequence. Everybody's like this because. Of course, you can simulate a lot, but it's still, it's still a model. And as you add the limits, you hope you're on the right side. The last test, the last load reaching 100%, the piece blew up, exploded. One year to design, one year to build. Uh, for us, I mean, uh, potentially losing the project. Because one year delay, if we understand immediately what we had to do, the time to rebuild the parts, is about 10, 12 million uh, Swiss francs or dollars was a little bit the same at the time. Mm. Uh, so for a small company, big, big money. Uh, so major, uh, major shock for the team, uh, loss of confidence, uh, huge financial uh, stress, uh, so big, big shakeout. So immediately, so you know, you, you say, shit, I, I mean, I, I, I'm losing one year. How am I going to do it? And after a few days, and I, normally I go walking when I, you know, in this situation to, to build up my, my energy, I started to think, yeah, but in, in fact, now you have one more year until you will be able to do the flight around the world. So instead of doing it into two years, we'll do it into three years. Now, how can you use this extra year? And I started to think, you know, you didn't lose a year, you gain a year. Uh, and something I want, we wanted to do with Berton was to bring the first airplane in the United States to fly from the West Coast to the East Coast. That's what the pioneers did in the, in the 20s. That's what mm -hmm. Charles Lindbergh did at right. the time. Huh? Yep. So that's what we did. Uh, and we brought it to California, the Silicon Valley. We were half a mile from, uh, from Google. We were able to bring Larry Page. Uh, to see the airplane, stayed two hours and, and, be, and decided to become a partner. Like, like the idea, like the challenge, I guess, like us as well. So suddenly, in fact, we were in a completely different situation because we had a partner who was bringing more money that we needed, in fact, to rebuild the part. We were having the best partner, of course, that you can think about for us in the United States, so not only in terms of money, but in terms of the potential of communication is represented. When I flew across the Pacific, uh, if you would type Google, uh, you would have the small window. Uh, underneath, you would have so Plus flying over the Pacific. You click there, you go on our website. You can imagine that. <laughs> uh, uh, so suddenly, in fact, from a, a situation where we were, which was extremely difficult, um, we ended up being, being in situations which I think moved that closer to the potential success uh, of the flight around the world uh, compared to situations without losing the, uh, the uh, and breaking, uh, breaking the spa. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the learning there was extremely important uh, because normally when you face a problem, you tend to spend a long time to to solve it. Mm -hmm. But you are taken by the depression first, and second, you focus on the problem. 
You don't focus about the situation it creates. And by taking some distance and trying to understand what does this new situation brings me, an extra year in my case, huh? how can I use it, bring this uh, aircraft to the United States? That's how you transform a problem into, uh, into an opportunity. And I think that's what, you know, when you go into the unknown, when you go into uh, this new project as an entrepreneur, uh, always let's try to develop this kind of, uh, this kind of at attitude. And again, it's a question of energy, building up its own energy to be able to assess the situation well. Right. Um, I don't want to miss to talk about risk management with a pilot. I think when you are up in the air, risk management is a big thing. And you have on your website, we are already have been talking about these eight principles. So one principle was to think about the worst that can happen. Think about the worst case scenario. Can you tell us a little bit like what was the worst case scenario for Solar Impulse and how did you visualize this scenario and how, how did it help you to actually achieve your, your goals? I think it's part of the attitude that you have to develop if you want to become an explorer. I mean, of course, you're an explorer if you, uh, uh, I mean, you know, if you go in space, if you if you try to do, uh, I mean, a new type of uh, flight with a new type of uh, technology. But people are explorers also in in many other situations uh, by creating a new business. I mean, you explore a new way of of uh, new technology, of uh, designing a part, of solving a problem, of providing a service to customers. So entrepreneurs are explorers. Uh, so the, 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 the attitude that you can develop, the mindset is extremely important. I mean, important was not to, to run marathons. So physically, uh, that was not the challenge. The challenge was mental. Uh, and there are different ways uh, to, uh, to do it. Uh, on one side, of course, you prepare for uh, any possible scenarios. Uh, you try to anticipate, because when you are prepared, of course, you react quicker, better. Uh, but you also have to know that whatever you prepare, it will happen differently. So you have to have the attitude of being able to welcome the unexpected. Uh, welcome uh, things that you never thought that it could develop this way. And I mean, I have also great examples from the, uh, from the long flaps from, uh, from, uh, from Japan to, uh, to Hawaii. Uh, so this preparation is key. Uh, but what's also important in this preparation is that when you look at the different scenarios, there are attractive scenarios, but there are also very difficult scenarios. And if you prepare the worst case scenario. And if you start to understand, even if this worst case scenario happens, uh, I will know how to manage it. It will take the anxiety away and you will forget about thinking about the worst, about the worst outcome. Uh, you'll be able to think about how to get through whatever you, uh, you, uh, you have to do. So for us, the worst outcome was to lose a wing by night, being able to, uh, I mean, needing to, uh, to jump out of the airplane, landing in the water and having to survive in the, in the water for a few days until someone picks you up. So we trained for that huh, with the German Navy. Uh, and when I flew once uh, for the first time with the first airplane from Washington to New York, I lost part of the undercover of the wing. And uh, a helicopter who came to make pictures at noon of the airplane told me that's, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that I was doing, uh, doing so. 
so the, the helicopter took uh, the picture of this uh, of the uh, undercover uh, being uh, uh, taken away by uh, by the airflow sent it to the engineers the engineers um, went back to me after a few minutes and they told me they were surprised that the wing did not disintegrate yet uh, so I may be ready to to jump uh, and uh, and then in fact uh, I went through the drill what I will do in every sequence and I thought I mean uh, if this happens if you have to do it, I mean, uh, you should be able to manage this, uh, this, uh, this sequence. Um, and as you will be able to manage, uh, try also to, uh, to, uh, to make it an experience. I mean, to live with it, because you don't have the chance to jump out every day. And by developing this mindset, it also took the anxiety away. And I, would, I could focus on the remaining flight. And I flew another nine hours until I could land at Kennedy. Huh? So preparing for the worst is, for me, extremely important, and that's what I do also in my, uh, in my business life, in my professional life. Great. But you never jumped. You never had to jump, actually. Uh, I did jump as to train, to but train. I never had to jump out of the airplane. I mean, okay. both airplanes was brought back on lands in, in the normal conditions. In normal conditions. No, yeah. airplanes always come back. Yeah, this we know. Sometimes without and sometimes but with sometimes pilots. But sometimes exactly in a disorganized <laughs> way, but in our case, we're always organized. Great. I really would like to go to one episode of your flight around the world. So actually, it was the last flight you did um, when you were flying from Sevilla to, uh, to Cairo. Um, and you were eating a raclette, so you were celebrating. Um, can you tell us how, what a feeling was it? Because you, you knew at that point you're probably going to make it. You're almost, we're almost at your goal. You almost reached it. How was the feeling? You know, on one side, it's an adventure uh, because you tried first. On the other side, it's extremely well organized. Uh, well, we had a team when we flew around the world of 140 people. There was engineers, there was the team who was uh, taking the airplane from one country to the next. Of course, on one side, communication, on the other side, maintenance and, 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 and technical. And there was a big uh, control center, mission control center in Monaco, uh, helping us basically to, to conduct these uh, very long duration uh, flights. So extremely organized, followed very carefully by, uh, by FOCA, by Lufthansa, by the uh, FA, I mean the Swiss mm -hmm. FA. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, as I said, on one side it's an adventure. On the other side, we live in the in the world which exists today, which is um, which is made of laws, which is made of regulations. So that was interesting. In fact, to always got these two these two worlds close to each other, and not easy, in fact, to. Uh, to, uh, to bring together because they're a little bit in opposition. Uh, so this, uh, this raclette was in some ways uh, a way to remember that, uh, you know, you can do things in a different way than what had to be organized because all our food was prepared long term in advance together with Nestle. They did a fabulous job to, to uh, prepare everything and to uh, measure everything and make sure that what we take is what we need, uh, a little bit like astronauts. So this one was going completely away <laughs> from them and celebrating just the pleasure of being uh, there and celebrating the pleasure of being Swiss. Yeah, I really loved that episode. So uh, 
was was great. So maybe uh, talking a little bit about the Swiss uh, startup ecosystem, like uh, you as a Swiss uh, pioneer flying around the world, you have seen a lot of cultures, you have meeting the Google founders. Is there anything you would recommend to the Swiss startup ecosystem to startup entrepreneurs or investors or the government in Switzerland? What could we do different to be more pioneerful? You know, it's a question again. I think it's a question of, uh, on one side, atti attitude and 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 behavior. Uh, I think as Swiss, we are pretty shy. Uh, we tend not to overestimate ourselves. Um, we tend to believe that others are doing fine, sometimes better, and I think we should not, because from. What I saw with this project, I mean, I haven't seen 60 years, but I mean, what I see also with, uh, with uh, the different startups I had is that this country does absolutely great in terms of, uh, of innovation. Uh, so that's important. On the other side, uh, it's important not to believe that you are good. It's important to do things in a very thorough way uh, and in a very professional way. And uh, that's where maybe also sometimes we, as entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, we have to be good, maybe better. Uh, so on one side, maybe a little bit less shy. On the other side, make sure that that's, we, are, uh, we are thorough in, in, in what you do because competition is, uh, competition is, is, uh, is, uh, is pretty hard. So it's to find really the, the right balance there. So I think mm -hmm. for me that's, that's important uh, and that's maybe the most important. Uh, what the country can do, I think in some ways, you know, if you look at the administration, we have a great administration when you compare to other countries, so uh, we criticize it all the time, but I think personally I think it's great. Uh, it's maybe not always easy, but I mean people are doing a fantastic, uh, fantastic job here in terms of support. Of course you can create maybe a company faster in, uh, in uh, Hong Kong than, than here, but I don't think that what really makes a huge, uh, a huge, uh, huge difference. Uh, uh, the difficulty we have is that the market is small. We have three languages, which means we have to export ourselves uh, quickly abroad. Uh, so whatever, as a Swiss, you can experience the life, uh, the culture of other countries is extremely important as young and as an advice to, to the young generation, that's what I would do. I mean, go out and 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 try, even if it's mm -hmm. uh, even if it's uh, it's hard. My, when my younger son was was 18, uh, Theo he said, "The future is in China. I need to be there." I mean, uh, it's it, it it's there that, uh, that that it's happening. So I can't stay in Switzerland. I mean, if I stay in Switzerland, I will not understand. So he went. He tried. He developed his own business. Uh, I think it was really hard because the Chinese are not uh, easy, uh, <laughs> easy going and, yeah. and easy ones there. And I'm sure he learned a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I admire that because I, I, I'm sure it was not easy, but that's what I would recommend people do. Great. Bringing it back to your person, I think um, as a person living on its limits, as a pilot does, um, you have certain ways how you treat yourself to be healthy, to be to stay uh, in shape. Are there any um, any things you can share with our audience, like any life hacks you you have? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, I always talk about level of energy. 
And uh, uh, I mentioned that's important in life is to be ready for the unexpected, for things which are not happening the way we'd like them to happen. And for me, when I'm disturbed by something like this, something new, something different, when I feel disturbed means my energy is low. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I try to build it up. And what do I do? I mean, I, well, I practice yoga since about 20 years, so it's part of my life. I use yoga for the flight of five days, five nights. Huh? I'm sure it was instrumental for the, for the uh, success. A lot of meditation, breathing techniques. Unfortunately, not every day, but, but, uh, but pretty regularly. And, um, and also I play with food and, and I know the, the, the food intake changes my, uh, uh, my, uh, my mindset, uh, my way of, uh, of uh, feeling, uh, feeling the world. So when I have pressure, I immediately quit coffee, I immediately reduce my, uh, or, or not drink my, uh, my, uh, my glass of red wine, which I like from, uh, from, uh, from time to time. So I play, I, uh, I constantly play, uh, play with this. Uh, just did, uh, did a detox this year. Last year I, I did a 10-year silent meditation, uh, 10 years, <laughs> really long, 10, uh, 10 days. days silent meditation, Vipassana, I don't know if you know that. Mm -hmm. This year I did a, a detoxification of the body. So uh, it was fasting, basically, uh, a little bit more than a week. Uh, so a good way to eliminate all the toxins that we uh, that we have, and we take more and more. Huh? Uh, so I think this, uh, the management of the of the body at the end, it's the mind body. I think is extremely important if someone wants to be uh, performing. I mean, uh, wanted to have some performance. And do you have there any books or anything you can recommend? Like, do you have any guru or whatever? Or how do you refer to these things? How did you get in touch like uh, with, with the detox, for example, or the 10 days of silent? How did you learn about that? They have to get in touch with my wife. Okay. That's, that's the, uh, that's <laughs> the best. So uh, your source mean? is your wife. Exactly. Okay. Ah, she's, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, okay. she's, uh, she's yeah. very, very important she is your channel. Guru. And, yeah. uh, exactly. <laughs> Uh, she's also exposed to a lot of these mm -hmm. uh, new new ideas. So she tries, we try, I uh, I try. So there's something we discuss mm -hmm. uh, very uh, very much together. No, there is no single person because there are a lot of different schools, and you right. have to try something and see what's good for you. Um, so it's it's really uh, being curious. Uh, and there are so many things on the internet which are available. I mean, videos, right. books, whatever. Uh, but there are so many things. But the important is to uh, is to try. And by making uh, your own opinions, you you see what uh, what brings you really uh, energy at the end. Huh? Where did where did you do your ten days silent meditation? Did you do it here in Switzerland or did yeah, you go did somewhere? Yeah, there is a center in uh, in uh, in Jura. Uh, that's good. I mean, the, the, this uh, school of meditation is called Vipassana. I think there are. Mm -hmm. Many many centers around the world. You don't have to go to India for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great uh, great place in uh, which you can recommend in Jura, which yeah. I can absolutely recommend. You don't need to know meditation. It's even better not to know meditation because they like to to show you maybe a different way. So by being unprepared, in some ways you are more open for them, very receptive, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic moment.
Very interesting. I have to try that too. <laughs> Never did. Please do it. Yeah. So we are already coming to the end of the interview. Is there anything you would like to share with the audience? I told you a little bit about the audience, young people who might start their business. Is there anything, a last message or an advice or something you'd like to share with them? You know, it's always easy to give uh, to give uh, to give recommendations and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, advices. Uh, so I'm not going to uh, to follow this way. Um, the 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 only thing is 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 to share. I was basically lucky uh, in some ways to meet my dream, uh, and uh, the way in fact it happened, which is very interesting, is that. When, uh, and I did it two times in my life, um, I felt uh, many times that I was too much taken by what I was doing. And I didn't have enough space to be open to the outside world. And so that was something like 16, 17 years ago, I decided to stop all my professional activities and uh, I did some social work, which I was not so much uh, involved with at the time, just to change. But I, I tried to free, uh, to, to, get, to get free time in order to meet people, to be, uh, to be open to different kind of ideas. And indirectly, that's how I met Bertrand. Uh, the, I met a friend and so on and so on, which gave, led me to something else indirectly. Indirectly, indirectly, it really led me to uh, opening up again. In fact, this world of my, uh, of the dream of my of my childhood. So, if I have an advice, that's the advice I would I would give: is let's try not to be too much taken by the day-to-day -day life, so that we can see the world of opportunities which come by uh, to uh, to us all the time. And I'm always wondering, what did I miss? Because I'm sure I missed, I missed so many fantastic things which were <laughs> just next to me, but I didn't see them because I didn't have the time for that. Mm. I didn't have, you know, just the, yeah, the, the, the eyes open. So that's my recommendation. A very, a very nice closing. So for me, the last question is, there are many people out there who are fascinated by your work. So what's the best way how they can follow what you're doing and follow Solar Impulse and keep in touch with you and your team? The best, I think, is Twitter and, and LinkedIn also. If I have a blog, I publish it on LinkedIn. Twitter, uh, intensity varies. I'm not the biggest Twitter because I don't like to say just, you know, that's great here on the slopes today because the, the snow is fantastic. Uh, so I try to, to share. Now I'm starting a new, uh, a, 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 a new business, a new activities. Okay. in the world of uh, aviation, which will make it disruptive. So I'm extremely excited. I thought that after this flight around the world, you know, I would stay calm and would not find anything which would ma make me rise every morning very early. But, but you are already restarted. I, I find, so I'm already engaged. So yes, follow, follow, follow us, follow me on Twitter and, okay. uh, and uh, LinkedIn. Can you already share something about your new project or is it very confidence right now? What I can share is that uh, so impulse on one side is solar, on the other side it's an electric aircraft, like we have electric cars. And uh, the electric propulsion, which was funny 13 years ago when we started, I mean, using the words of, uh, of uh, other people, is now in the center of the developments of 
the major aviation, aviation players. Why? Because with electric propulsion you can uh, uh, create a game changer in the way you design the airplane because it's very flexible, it's easy to command, it's software. Uh, like in Elon Musk rockets, huh? that's, mm -hmm. that's the way he wants to, to change space. That's a bit the way he changed the cars uh, with the Tesla, although Tesla is a little bit like another car. I think it will change airplanes much more dramatically. Uh, it's uh, much more efficient, uh, so you gain in efficiency, which is great. It's quieter, it's going to be cleaner. Uh, so electric propulsion is going to be completely disrupting the, uh, the uh, aviation industry. It's going to be a game changer, and I, I really want to be a part of it. Very great. Thank you so much for having us, and I hope to stay in touch. Great pleasure. Really nice. Thank Share. you, Andre. Thanks. <laughs>